0: On November 19th, in the year 1863, in a field in Pennsylvania, President Abraham Lincoln delivered one of the most famous addresses in American history. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this, but in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it, far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note, nor long remember what we say here. that we here rightly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Of course, the Gettysburg Address. You probably remember the opening lines. Maybe the closing lines ring a bell, but for so many Americans especially, the idea of hallowed ground that Lincoln spoke of, that's foreign. It's becoming more and more foreign to us. That's because the idea of holiness is foreign to so many of us. Lincoln spoke of the the inability to consecrate the battlefield, to, to set it apart as sacred because it had already been hallowed. It had already been made holy by the brave men who had fought there. Now, regardless of the theological implications of this, Lincoln's words are actually rooted in the language of Scripture. Words of consecration and holiness. And what he famously spoke there on that, on that Gettysburg battlefield also reflects our own experience of sanctification. We are unable to dedicate or consecrate or hallow ourselves or anything else for that matter. We can only acknowledge the holiness that God gives us and then work to grow in Christ-like holiness. The blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, cleanses us from all sin. Consecrates us to live under his kingdom, in his, in his, under him in his kingdom, and his Holy Spirit sanctifies us in the truth of his word, God's word. And so while it is true that we cooperate, sanctification, being conformed to the image of Christ, is not a personal self improvement project. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit as he works in our life. As we meditate on the word of God. Not only in your private Bible reading, but especially as we come together and the word of God is proclaimed. We're in the midst of studying Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. And in this prayer, Jesus has prayed for his own consecration as he prepares to go to the cross and offer the final sacrifice in just a matter of hours. From when he prays this. But he's not only prayed for himself, he's also prayed that the Father would keep this particular people and mark them with joy. In fact, as this prayer continues to unfold, Jesus will, will pray that, that his people would not only be marked by joy, but that they would also be marked by mission and unity and love and holiness and truth. But one of the things that we as Christians need to hold fast to, one of the things we need to understand and hang on to is that Jesus is praying, He is interceding to the Father on our behalf, and His prayer is that we might be protected. That His people might be kept secure in the strong tower of the name of God. And God answers that prayer. The people of Christ are facing a real and present danger. And it's a danger that threatens each of the areas that Jesus prays for throughout this. There's a real and present threat to our Christian joy, is there not? It doesn't take much for us to be less than joyful. Maybe I'm speaking only for myself, but it doesn't take much for us to be less than joyful. To cause us to forget or even refuse to rejoice in some instances. There is a real and present threat to our mission to go and make disciples of all nations. That, that mission of baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. There is a real and present threat to our unity. There's a real and present threat to our love, to our holiness. There's a real and present threat to our holding fast to the truth. We know that there are joy killers and holiness compromisers and truth deniers and mission creep and unity dividers and love destroyers, even among those who claim the name of Christ. How much more so in the world in which we live? And that's where the threat comes from. The danger is simple. It's worldliness. The world is out to destroy each of those marks of the church that Jesus is praying for in these verses. But keep this in mind as we walk through this. Jesus, God the Son, is praying to God the Father. And I've said all along, God answers Jesus' prayer. So while the threat is real... God answers Jesus' prayer. What do we mean by the world here? Um, we should define this before we keep going. And I think the most straightforward way to answer this is to listen to what, listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5. This is verses 12 to 14. He says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one to come. So when we speak of the world in this context, of, of the context of worldliness, We're talking about that system of human life and thought in which sin and death reigns. Romans chapter 5. The world are all those who have not received him as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and in fact stand against him. They're children of Adam, dead in their sins. Now to be clear... There are other uh, meanings for the, for the term the world, even in John's gospel. So for example, in John 3.16, that famous passage, that says, For God so loved the world, that means both Jew and Gentile. But here we're talking about worldliness. Worldliness as the opposite of holiness. The world stands in opposition to holiness and truth. This is the world that Jesus is praying about here in John chapter 17, and we're going to look this morning at verses 14 through 17, when he prays that his own disciples would be marked by holiness and truth. So keep this in mind as we read these verses. Let me read this. John 17, 14 through 17 says this. Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now let's just stop here and ask God to help us to understand these things. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. Help us to understand that we might... Be sanctified in the truth of your word. Your word is truth. Father, make us holy as Christ is holy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have seen as um, we have worked through this, Jesus is praying here for his own particular people. And he even says why he knows that they are his He says this in verse 8, he says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. He has given them his word, and they have obeyed it. That word is the message of the gospel. We have seen this throughout the the word of God, really. And so, for example, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, when... Jesus proclaimed when he first showed up on the scene in Mark's gospel, his message was simple repent and believe in the gospel. They have obeyed that message, and by extension, they have received him. And so the, the Father has given them the right to be called children of God. And this means that the word that he has given them is nothing less than the truth. It is the revelation of God to them. And of course, Jesus has said to them, even just at the beginning of this discussion, back in chapter 14, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so to know him is to know the truth, and to know the truth is to have eternal life. But the world hates him, and all that is his, because the world stands in direct opposition to him. Remember, the opposite of worldliness is holiness. The opposite of holiness here is worldliness. And so as his own, we are guaranteed opposition and conflict. Opposition and conflict. Now, it's important to note that, as usual, verse 14 follows verse 13. It's important to note that. Because of what verse 13 says. Let me read these two verses together. 13 says, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He has spoken these things. He has given them the word of God in order to bring joy to God's people. And this joy is the joy of salvation. He has told them who he is, what he must do, and he's going to do it here in just a few hours. Go to the cross to take their sins upon himself, to die for their sins as a sacrifice, but to have victory over sin and death and to be raised again to a resurrection in just a few days, to ascend to the Father's right hand. He has spoken these things in order to bring joy to God's people, and this joy is the joy of salvation. But in this world, and because of Christ and his word, Christians are going to be faced with opposition and conflict. But what is Jesus praying for here? He's specifically not praying for us to be removed from conflict. He's not praying for us to face no opposition. Instead, Jesus is praying for us to be marked by holiness and truth. Now, right here, we should should find a definition for holiness. Because you're probably thinking something. But we should find a common definition for holiness here. I've been very slowly... I'm a slow reader, and I've been very slowly reading through a book on uh, pastoral ministry by a pastor named Harold Sinkbeel, who says some pretty helpful things about holiness. I'm indebted to his work for this teaching. What do we mean by holy? It's a word that's found all over Scripture, right? It's found throughout our prayers. You hear, we pray this all the time. It's found in, our, in all of our hymns, so many of our hymns. Yet its meaning is sometimes difficult to define. So at times, holy will be used as an adjective to describe a holy people or holy things. But what happens then when we read, for example, the command from Leviticus chapter 19 verse 2, which says this, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's actually a command, but it's also a promise. This is a promise. What God requires, he also gives. Holiness is demanded, and holiness is provided. This is how Peter can call Christians to holiness in his epistle. He's quoting from Leviticus when he said in 1 Peter 1.16, As it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Only God is intrinsically holy in himself, yet in his gracious, loving kindness, he shares his holiness with his people. So, so let this sink in. You, you can't really define holiness, at least not apart from the nature and character of God. Holiness belongs to God. It doesn't merely describe God, rather it defines him and vice versa. God defines holiness by who he is. See, before holy is an adjective, it's a noun. So think of Psalm 99, 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. What makes the mountain holy? The fact that God is there. Wherever God is, their holiness is found. Moses learned this at the burning bush. Holiness is not easily defined because it's a part of his very essence and what sets God apart from the rest of all of his creation. God's holiness is his divinity. It's his complete otherness from anything else. So keep this in mind as we get back to Jesus' prayer here. According to this, there's a, there's a distinct kind of twofold danger that Christians face, that Jesus is praying for here. There are two different threats that are conspiring together to bring the same result. And the first threat is here in verse 14. Look at this again. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So the first threat is pretty clear. It's the hatred of the world. Hatred of the world. I'm guessing that when most of us read this, we think of the physical threat in this. But remember, Jesus is praying for the disciples' souls. He's praying for their attitudes. He's praying for what's going on in their hearts. It's true that Christians face persecution, that Christians face physical threats, that this world has put Christians in jail. This world has put Christians to death. They've taken away businesses. They've taken away homes. But the goal, their goal, the goal of the world is to destroy our holiness. They don't really care if we live or die. Their goal is to destroy our holiness. Most of us want to be loved by the world. Most of us want to be loved by the people around us. We work hard at this sometimes. And there are passages of scripture that actually address this. So, for example, Philippians chapter 4 instructs us to let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Peter goes so far as to write that Christians defend their hope in Christ with gentleness and respect. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. But there's a difference between being reasonable and gentle and respectful And a desire to love the world. Because the way this desire works out practically ends up all too often compromising our holiness. Does it not? You know as well as I do that Christians, including you and me, um, have participated in the lusts of the flesh so that we would be loved and accepted. Maybe by classmates or friends. Maybe by neighbors or co-workers. But 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 makes it very clear. John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. See, the disciples of Jesus Christ are called out of the world. We are no longer like the world because we have received the word of God and have been born again to a new and living hope. We have been born again to eternal life. And the holiness that we have, we have received from God. Sometimes we call this Christ-likeness. And this is a threat to the world because the world resents Christ. The world resents Christ and therefore resents Christians. Christians. And eagerly works to draw us back into sin. A good example of this, especially of the, of the subtlety for how the world works, is John the Baptist's relationship with Herod. Mark chapter six, verse 20 tells us the story. Verse 20 just simply says this: "Herod feared John knowing that he was righteous, a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe." And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. There's a subtlety in this. Herod found John fascinating, yet he feared him because he was holy. And ultimately, Herod, if you know the story, I would encourage you to go ahead and read Mark 6 at some point if you don't. But ultimately, Herod loved the world more than he loved John's message of repentance. And if you know that story, you know that he ended up having John the Baptist beheaded because he loved the world more than he loved, more than he was intrigued by John's teachings. Here's the thing. In the world, Christians are going to require God's intervening protection, which is what Jesus is praying about here. And again, the Father answers this prayer. I want to give you an example specifically of how he answered this prayer. Turn to Acts chapter 12. I want to read verses 6 through 11. Acts chapter 12 verse 6 says this. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He didn't know that what was being done by an angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When he had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hands of Herod and from all the Jewish people, all that they were expecting. God saved and protected Peter. Peter is one of the 11 for whom Jesus was offering up this high priestly prayer. Jesus, Peter heard Jesus saying these words in John 17. But so was James. I hope you're still there in Acts chapter 12 because look at the opening couple verses of that chapter. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John. With the sword. James was one of the eleven, too. So, did Jesus' prayer fail? Did the father fail to answer the prayer of the son on behalf of James? Or John, who had to go through the rest of his life knowing that his brother had been killed? Or any of the other eleven? Whose friend and coworker was put to death with a sword? Did God fail to answer this prayer? No. And, and actually, this is a perfect illustration of, of Paul's famous words, "To live is Christ and to die is gain." For, for Peter to live was Christ in this moment. For James to die was gain in this moment. This prayer is more about holiness than it is about physical protection. It was good for James to be glorified in Acts chapter 12 and for Peter to be set free because two things will then happen later in the chapter. The persecution will cause Peter to flee the area and continue to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth and God poured out his wrath on Herod which resulted in... Just look at these last couple of verses... Chapters, uh, so Acts 12, 24 and 25. There's a, I'm not going to take the time to read it. Read Acts 12 sometime. Because what happens to Herod is God's wrath being poured out on him in a unique way. But in verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. These three men introduced here. The word of God increased and multiplied. And now we are introduced again to Barnabas, who discipled Saul, who was also known as Paul, and John, who was also known as Mark, who would write probably the first written gospel written down, the gospel according to Mark probably from Peter's point of view. The word of God increased and multiplied. Acts chapter 12 is, a, is kind of a turning point in redemptive history, in the history of Christ building his church. What they faced then and we still face today and Christians everywhere and throughout history have faced opposition and conflict, but we are protected. We are protected. and So we may die by the sword... But to die is gain. We may be released and to live is Christ. We are protected. Really brings up the second threat, which is moral and spiritual corruption. So back in um, John chapter 17, look at verse 15. John 17, 15 says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one this teaching and this prayer makes clear really a couple of very important things one that jesus loves his own and desires to be with him with them for them to be with him for all of eternity jesus loves his own and desires to be with them for all of eternity and two he is going to spend all of eternity with them in fact one of the first things he said back in chapter 14 verse 3 was this I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. And so when he comes when he comes to the prayer the gist of the prayer the, the kind of the the core intercession of this prayer is the word keep. He uses it in verse 11 and again here in verse Keep them in you, he says to the Father, and then keep them from the evil one. Keep them from Satan. Satan has been at work corrupting the church by infusing her with worldly values, with worldliness. Look around, right? It's everywhere. Churches are tripping over themselves to be open and affirming, to align themselves with This worldly ideology and that worldly ideology, to be woke, to be loved by the world. But listen to this warning from Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Jesus says this, But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus himself said this to the church at Ephesus, to the Ephesians. To remove the lampstand is to remove the source of light. It is to to cause the church to go dark, to shut it down. Churches that have given themselves over to worldliness should be shut down, and Jesus says he's going to shut them down for the sake of the holiness of God's people, for the sake of the holiness of God's name, of God's church. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Moral and spiritual corruption brought about by worldliness is a threat to the church that's far greater than mere outward persecution. Because it is, a, it is a re-assimilation into the world. And I, woe to those shepherds who lead Christ's flock back to the wolves. And just as a side note, <clears throat> this is why we have a, we've worked hard to maintain a high view of worship here at Logansville Church. Combined with a high view of God's word. It takes both. I'm convinced it takes both of these things Because I know that there are many formal and liturgical churches that have abandoned the gospel. Because while they had a high view of worship, maybe even a higher view than ours, they didn't have a high view of God's word. But on the other end of the spectrum, we're not trying to look like a rock concert or a comedian or a motivational speaker because we're worshiping a holy God who calls us to holiness. He calls us to complete otherness. <clears throat> so I want you to take a couple of minutes here for some thoughtful introspection. It's not a time to look around and say to yourselves, Thank you, God, that I am not like that man. But rather, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Okay. I want to give you four or five areas that we comp- uh, commonly compromise our holiness, both us individually and collectively. But thoughtful introspection, so think of this for yourself. The first area that we often compromise our holiness is in materialism. Materialism. We all like stuff. Don't get me wrong, stuff is useful, stuff is good. Stuff can be God-glorifying, but do you live for stuff? Do you live for stuff? Francis Schaeffer He once expressed concern that evangelical Christians' biggest desire was for peace and enough money to enjoy it, but that they didn't really care about God or others or even their own holiness. And again, don't get me wrong, peace and enough money to enjoy it sure sounds pretty good, but is that it? Is that what you're living and working for? Second... The second area that we commonly compromise our holiness is in relativism, shifting truth. Sometimes we're so concerned with offending people who are wrong or who are caught in in sin or even flaunting their sin that we forget our concerns with our own sin and God and holiness. We're more concerned with offending people than we are with sin. Relativism, shifting truth. The third is sensationalism or or maybe emotionalism we've replaced the word think and believe with the word feel and so I feel like we are too driven by our emotions we want entertainment in place of holiness here we are now entertain us right we live in a world that's driven by sensationalism, driven by emotionalism, and yet we are called to think. We are called to consider the cost. That's what thinking is. We're called to think, to consider the cost. We are called to believe in Christ. We're called to, to His holiness. Fourth, The fourth area that we commonly compromise our holiness is with humanism. The church continues to embrace Christians continue to embrace the world's views on creation, on the sanctity of human life, on sexuality, on gender. The list goes on and on and on. And then finally, the the fifth area, which is like the first area, it's a little bit different, is consumerism. Now, I know most of you well enough to know that this probably doesn't describe you, but American Christians have this unique habit of choosing churches for what they will provide for us, like a cool youth group or trendy music or whatever. But I know that most of you have come here, especially if you've come here in the last five or six years, you've come here for protection and healing. You've come here for the healing waters of God's word and the Holy Spirit. You've come here because we believe in the truth of Jesus' promise, come all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And that's the protection that Jesus is praying for here. Keep them from the evil one. Keep them from moral and spiritual corruption. Corruption, moral and spiritual corruption from without and also from within. Keep them holy as he is holy. And keep them set apart. Set apart. Look at verse 16. They are not of the world just as I am not of this world. What does it mean that we're not of this world? Well, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we cannot enjoy God's good gifts. Even the stuff. I would, I would encourage you to go back and read the book of Ecclesiastes. Go back and a couple of years ago, I preached through Ecclesiastes. Go back and listen to that. It was very freeing to me, personally, to come to the conclusion, finally, that it is okay to enjoy every sandwich, right, to the glory of God. That it is okay to be a car guy, to enjoy cars or tractors or whatever your thing is, right? It's okay to like the craftsmanship of an old house or the tone of a cool electric guitar, for Christians to be not of this world means that we are not confused with the world. It doesn't mean that we're withdrawn from the world. It means that we remain here in the world as long as he wills and, he, and we maintain our witness to the truth of the gospel with the help of the Holy Spirit. The church at Corinth got this all mixed up and so Paul has to, has to tell them this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9-12. to 12, He says this, speaking specifically. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you'd need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Paul is calling them to be set apart in holiness. You're going to deal with sexually immoral people, he says, along with all kinds of other sinners in the world, but this is not what the church is to be. That's what he is saying here the church should not be confused with the world we should it should be completely clear we should be completely other and distinct we should be holy set apart christians should look very different from the world and by look i, I, I don't mean look necessarily i don't mean dress necessarily i, I mean i mean be i mean in our hearts Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that really is the source of our actions too. We're called to be holy as he is holy. So the big question that all of this is leading to is how? How? Jesus clearly answers this in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Truth. Jesus is praying to the Father that he would make us holy in the truth of his word. So when we gather together, for example, every sermon is preached to make you holy. And me. Every sermon is preached to make us holy. Every scripture is read publicly to make us holy. Every Bible study is undertaken to make us holy, to sanctify us in the truth. Every time we pray the truth of Scripture, it is done to make us holy. Every hymn that we sing that reflects the truth of God's word is sung to make us holy. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 puts it like this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, speaking to the church when it has gathered together. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Ephesians says almost the same thing, except instead of the word of Christ, it is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit uses God's word to make us holy. Holy that's the prayer here sanctify them in the truth your word is truth don't listen to anyone who calls you to be anything less than holy don't even listen to them especially if they're up up here don't let them back this is part of the reason why there are standards and qualifications for elders and deacons because they're they're going to be calling those under their care to holiness and so we must be holy as the chief shepherd is holy So the under-shepherds must be holy, as the chief shepherd is holy. Hebrews 13, verse 7 says this, speaking specifically of pastor-teachers. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. They have to be holy. Imitate that. But here's the kicker here. Don't leave here today thinking that you, ho- you, you heard me tell you to do a bunch of things in order to produce holiness. Don't leave here today thinking that you heard me tell you do a bunch of things in order to produce holiness. So don't hear me say, do this, do this, do this. Hear me say this, done. Verse 17 is the summary of this. It's the how of this. Because of who is active in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is praying this to the Father. He's asking the Father to do this. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is his prayer. You can be holy because he makes you holy. You can be sanctified in the truth of God's word because he's doing it. Because his word is truth. Do we have responsibility as Christians? Absolutely. But rest in the fact that Jesus is praying this for us. He's asking the Father to do this work. Sanctify, make them holy. Set them apart for you in the truth. Make them holy, make them distinct from the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Let's pray together. Father, it is easy for us to abandon um, holiness. It's easy for us to look around at the world and say it's not that bad. And so it's my prayer that we would not fight against the holiness that you are calling us to, that you are are working in our hearts. It's my prayer, Lord. With Christ, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Yes, we need to work Lord, at casting off the sin that so easily entangles us. But help us to rest knowing that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Help us to rest knowing that the the Son is praying to you, Father. Help us to rest knowing that he always lives to make intercession for us. This prayer, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Father, this is our prayer, that you would continue to do the work that you have begun. and We are confident that you will bring this to completion, that you will make us holy as Christ is holy. We are confident that to die is gain, that one day when the work is completed that we would stand face to face in glory. And so, Lord, I pray that until then you would continue to sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.